Let's get going tonight in the Word, and I, I want to go ahead and jump in and, and uh, share with you what, I, what I've been wrestling with for a few days now. This is our 10th, I think, Sermon on the Cross in this series. It really, it's, every sermon's on the cross in a way, but this is a little set we've been trying to do to really get to the bottom of that. And I realize we haven't really scratched the surface of what the cross is. I, I can look through, I could stand here right now and list off just off the top of my head, things that we could do if we wanted to get serious about exhausting the subject of the cross that we haven't even touched in regards to things he did to fulfill prophecy, the things that he was doing through the lens of the New Testament writers. So I'm not really trying to do that, really just trying every week to hear what the Spirit would say. Last Friday night, I was in Chapin, and I ministered from Colossians, uh, and I, I, I really was trying to focus on the things we've taken off in Christ and the things we've put on in Christ. And that's just another fancy way of saying we died at Calvary, we resurrected with Jesus. And that's what we've been talking about for weeks in this lesson, on, in, in these studies, sorry, on the cross, is, is really just meeting the end of our old self there. Um, in the middle of that, preparing for that lesson with that group, and they always sort of bring out a lot of deep the deep well, as far as I'm concerned, in myself when I go to Chapin. They, something about the way they're pulling things. And so as that service unfolded and as I studied that out, um, I started to land on this tonight, on Tuesday night. What, what, one more thing. And every week now I come in going, this is probably it. So I'll say it again this week. This is probably it. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, one more thing, and that really is the victory of the cross. And to take it from where we ended last week, by the way, I've probably got more response from last Tuesday night's lesson on the cross than we had any other one except maybe the cross teaches us how to die. That was a kind of a high watermark early in this study. But beyond the cross last week, I think the fact that we shared so much of our own journey, my own personal journey, and what that looked like in teaching and preaching the cross, and then that land beyond the cross being not illegal for us, not off limits for us, but rather a land we go because that's where the resurrection happens. But the beyond the cross led me to tonight, the idea that there's victory in the cross and that we should focus on that victory, even if that means at the expense of the Jesus died for my sins motif, which is part of the Christian message. Jesus died for my sins. But because we've been so focused on the individual, Jesus paid my debt, paid debt he did not owe, Jesus died for my sin, because we've focused so hard on that, and we have, that's been the whole gospel message, is Jesus died for you, you individually. What we lost, I think, along the way was the cross was the victory of heaven over the powers of darkness. And I, I know we didn't lose it theoretically. We know that. Because if you ask people, when, did Jesus defeat the devil? They're, yeah, where? At the cross. But they only believe it theoretically. They don't really believe it in practice. It's why they're so excited about a future eschatological return of Jesus to really beat the devil up and to beat up the Antichrist and to beat up the beast and to beat up the kingdoms of the world. And in that version of the victory of the cross, God is trying it his way now which is salvation by grace through faith and nonviolent resistance to the forces of this world. But someday God's apparently going to get fed up with his sort of sissified way of facing the devil. 
and he's going to pick up the armaments of war and he's going to slit throats and stomp necks and, and cut out hearts and there's going to be rivers of blood and the, the host of heaven is going to watch as Jesus triumphs over evil by using the exact same weapons and tools that the devil's been using for thousands of years because in the end, true victory is where Jesus shows up and fights like a man. I heard someone preach something very similar, similar recently to, I don't have any space to follow the Jesus of the gospels. Give me the Jesus of revelation. And this was a big pulpit preacher too. And they loved it. That was applause worthy because who doesn't want to follow the Jesus that's got the sword and stuff. People are bleeding and he's stepping on bodies. And that's when the manly Jesus shows up and there's a pushback against any kind of Jesus that is too forgiving, too loving, too gentle. He's a little too effeminate. The real masculine Jesus is going to show up at the end of the day when this is all said and done. He's going to pick up the weapons and he's going to use the devil's equipment against him. And I say that we have lost sight of what the cross was really all about. Victory is not ahead for you. God is not someday going to defeat the devil. God is not someday going to overcome the forces of darkness. Sin is not going to get what's coming to it someday. I think if we for a moment could lay down our infatuation with this constance of the personal salvation, and I don't mean you're not personally saved, but just lay it down for a minute. If we could lay that down for a minute, maybe we could pick up the victorious cross where I'm already stepping into the victory that's been afforded to me by Jesus. Let me start with a quote by Harold Wilson Willimon from a book called Resident Aliens. I just, I wrote this down some time ago and thought it was a great way to kick off this evening. The cross is not a sign of the church's quiet, suffering submission to the powers that be, but rather the church's revolutionary participation in the victory of Christ over those powers. At Calvary, we are stepping into the victory of Christ over the powers that be. We are not anticipating the victory of Christ over the powers that be. We are not just quietly suffering. We are stepping into what was actually a revolutionary, what looked like mere suffering and death on the part of Jesus was actually a revolutionary act where the kingdom of God was defeating darkness in its own backyard. And that's the victory I want to talk about tonight because in reality, we all want victory over whatever it is we need victory over. And we've always said this in the church, you know, Jesus gives you victory over sin, the flesh, and the devil. And I'm not sure we even knew how to parse the difference in those three, but whatever. But we always believed that victory was ahead. And we define victory as when we stop sinning or when people stop dying. We put results in the future as a way to determine whether or not we have victory. And I think we've missed the point of the cross, which is that Christ came out of the grave, thus guaranteeing the victory that was his at Calvary, is ours, not will be ours, is ours as we participate by faith and that's where we're going to head to tonight. To start with, I want to go Old Testament, New Testament, post-resurrection. All right? So th a three-step process. Old Testament prophecy of victory. New Testament promise of victory. Post-resurrection guarantee of victory. And what does that look like? Okay? Isaiah 25.8. I choose the King James Version for this because of one word. And that is the word victory. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. 
and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord, the covenant God, has spoken it. Note in the beginning of this text that he swallows up death in, there's your key word, victory. So for God, victory, which by the way, isn't ever talked about in the Old Testament until you get to the conquests. Only when you start to get to Israel's conquests of the promised land does the word victory start getting dropped into the Old Testament. So it most definitely has to do with military conquest in, in, in framing through the language of the Hebrews. So God starts talking about victory over the forces in the, in the promised land, and then he inserts death into the equation. God's going to swallow up death with his own kind of victory. He's going to win a victory over death. So the promise of the Old Testament, tears are going to get wiped away. God's people are going to be uh, brought up into him. The Lord speaks it. Death swallowed up in victory. Now, if, if we don't take this little journey, Old Testament, New Testament, post-resurrection, if we don't, then we run the risk of taking a verse like Isaiah 25, 8 and saying, someday the victory's ours because we're not going to die anymore. Right? And that's the danger of the here a verse, there a verse theology that a lot of us play. Just go find a verse that kind of lines up with it. But if we walk through this, the narrative of the Bible, we'll find that this stuff has already met its fulfillment. Here's an example. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah. You were just in Isaiah. And he says this, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. Old King James there says, till he sends forth judgment to victory and in his name the Gentiles will trust. I want to stay here on 2021 because first of all, I want to bring up what is a quite poetic statement by Jesus. The bruised reed he will not break and the smoking flax will he not quench until he brings forth justice or judgment unto victory. Victory had already been prophesied in Isaiah. Jesus reaches back into Isaiah and, and quotes a portion of that and quotes elsewhere from the book of Isaiah and says that there's a victory coming in which God's going to bring justice to Gentiles. Gentiles, not just Jews, but he's going to incorporate the whole wide world into his victory. And one of the evidences of that victory is he's not going to break the bruised reed and he's not going to quench the smoke, smoking flax. And why this, this is lost on us, because we don't have bruised reed and smoking flaxes. So let's figure out what Jesus is talking about. The bruised reed was the reeds along the marshlands would be used as instruments. And you would, you would take the reed and remove the soft core of the reed till it was hollow. Think bamboo. It's not the same thing, but kind of think in those terms. You can kind of imagine that. And then you could cut it and make a, a musical instrument out of it by putting holes in, into it, like a flute. We might consider like a recorder, clarinet style sound and of course the volume the the notes would vary based on the length of the reed the width of the reed where the hole positioned were um they were cheap though because the reeds grew in the thousands along the marshland so if you tore if you took a reed out of the ground 
and you cut it off to make an instrument out of it and you cleaned out the center and you put holes and you broke it, you cracked it, you just throw it down and you go get a new reed because it didn't cost anything. There was a thousand of them and it didn't take forever to do. You just pick it up, knock the ends off. So any crack, any breaking, you just throw it away. Jesus uses a very common illustration. It's like a bruised reed he will not break. In other words, you're so valuable that when you crack, he will not throw you out. He will fix you. Or he will just accept you in your cracked state, your broken state. This is, this is a victory that's never been seen before. People have been dispensable. And if, if no, one, no one in their right mind would fix a broken reed when you could just go get another reed. Why would you fix this one when there's another one? They go, no, no, but this one's mine. And it's a little bit like the potter's wheel from Jeremiah. The clay and the, and, and the clay spinning around on the potter's wheel and it falls. And the potter doesn't just throw it out, but instead fixes it, which is an illustration for he doesn't kick you out when there's something wrong. He fixes you. So the victory he's talking about is not just is not the crushing, but the fixing. Okay, so when he talks about victory, it's not stomp your enemies. It's that's part of it, but not in the way we think. It's fix the broken. And the smoking flax he will not quench was like the, the wick that floated in the wax. And once the wick had burned out, you could repair it or you could just quench it and start over. And so quenching it and starting over with a brand new one is the way to go, but it could also be repaired with care. And so Jesus picks another illustration to say, I don't put the smoking flax out. I don't just snuff you out. I repair you. I fix you. So in all of the areas of the world, and you could use a comp, an illustration now of something that's cheap that you wouldn't waste your time fixing, you'd just buy another one. I don't know a good illustration, but you could probably come up with 20. Whatever it is, Jesus throws a couple of them in and says, this is what victory's gonna look like when he gets here. And of course we know that he is that one till he sends forth judgment to victory. So the judgment or the justice that's going to fall on Jesus at the cross will bring the kind of victory where the bruised reeds will not be broken and the smoking flaxes will not be quenched. That God's victory looks different than the victories of military leaders in the world that crush things in order to win. He fixes the crushed and wins. Different kind of victory. Reverse your thoughts about victory when you start to think about Jesus. So that's a New Testament confirmation and in His name will the Gentiles trust. So once again... Gentiles mentioned in Isaiah, Gentiles mentioned in Matthew, victories associated with the Gentiles coming in. In reality, victory then is fixing what has been broken. Victory is opening the borders so that more people are allowed in. We wouldn't call either one of those things victory. In fact, we would call those things compromise. <laughs> compromise and waste of time. Why waste your time fixing Bruce Reed? Why compromise let people in shouldn't be in? So already our concepts of victory and his concept of victory is living on two different universes. All right. Now, now, okay, we went Old Testament. We went New Testament. Go post-resurrection. Go watch how Paul treats that resurrection idea in a text we've used before. We're going to use it again tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. This is maybe, for my money, this is it. This is, this is Paul's, this is the climactic resurrection argument from Paul. From 1 Corinthians 15, these four verses. When this corruptible 
has put on incorruption. When this body, which is going, thought, we, all, we say this in the world, father time always wins. What do we mean by that? Everybody dies. That's what we mean by that. Nobody gets around it. Everybody dies. Okay, so Paul is saying it in a different way, but it might have sounded like this. Nobody beats father time. Everybody dies. When that happens, the mortal puts on the immortal, and it shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. So there is a victory exacted that swallows up the death that I'm destined to go into. We're all going to die. But there's a victory that guarantees that my death isn't the end of the story. All right, so now we're getting another idea about what victory looks like. So my death isn't the end of the story. That leads us to say, and note these are in quotes because he's quoting the Old Testament. Death, where is your sting? Hades or grave, where is your victory? So there's a sting associated with death and a victory associated with the grave because how, why, why call it a victory? Because he's undefeated, right? Because everybody wins or everybody dies. So, so death always has the victory. 56, then this statement. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. So sin leads us into death. We, we can't simply be talking about this thing dying anymore because we're all going to die whether in sin or not, right? Even Jesus died. So we're all going to die whether in sin or not. So we're not just talking about this. We're not just talking about flesh. The sting of death is sin. We're talking about in a, in a very spiritual aspect, the thing that kills my spirit man is sin. And sin is only as strong as the law attached to it. And so wherever there's law that says thou shalt or thou shalt not, and I don't do the, the do and I don't the don't, I fall into the sting. I'm immediately underneath the condemnation of sin. I'm a neat, immediately a loser. But, and that's the great rebuttal of verse 57. So Paul, knowing that you're going to lose because death is undefeated and that you're, you're going to sin and that you're going to be, you're going to even die spiritually because of that, says, but, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not thanks be to God who someday after we die and hereafter in the glory land, we get the, no, he goes, but thanks be to God, we get the victory in Christ. What is it about in Christ that brings the victory to me in this natural realm? And that is the culminating argument of 1 Corinthians. Because remember how it started? We preach Christ crucified. To the Gentile, this is stupid. He goes, this is foolish. To the Greek, or to, the, to the Gentile, it's, it's foolishness. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. We preach this, and he goes, we won't preach anything else. Everything else is in vain. And then as he instructs the Corinthian church, he circles back to his theme of the cross. And this is what we quoted for you. We've quoted this two or three times in this study. In, in 15, where he says, If Christ be not raised, you are still in your sins. Your faith is vain. So the resurrection becomes a culminating argument. So when you get to the end of 15, Paul has sort of preached himself into a frenzy and he arrives at this last thing. Thanks be to God. The victory is ours in Christ. How'd the story open? We preach Christ crucified. How's the story end? 
Thanks be to God, that's the victory. So the Christ crucified message is my victory. Not someday will be my victory, it is my victory. Christ wins there, which leads me to this thought. We have victory in Christ's death and resurrection because sin has been conquered at the cross. Don't, for just a second, lay down the idea Jesus died as me if I, because I sinned, Jesus had to die. Just lay it down for a second and pick this thought up. I didn't say leave it forever. There's great utility in that, but I, just lay it down for a minute. You only hold on to so many things at the same time. Most of us really get excited about one thing. And, you know, we're all fired up about one thing, and then that season ends, and we get all fired up about something else. So let's just relax for a minute on the he took my sins part and lay that baby down. And he's still there, still viable, got a lot of good texts with it, a lot of good scriptures. But in the meantime, pick this thought up that my victory happens because. Jesus actually beat up sin at the cross. He, he beat it to the point that it is useless, that it doesn't even count anymore. That when he went to the cross, it wasn't just Jesus died for me, Jesus died as my sin, Jesus paid the debt. No, it's Jesus faces sin and death at Calvary, squares off with them. Me versus you, you versus me, come on. And steps right into death to beat it at its own game get swallowed up of death so that he can resurrect in victory, conquering sin. And because of that, sin cannot sting you because it has lost its strength. It doesn't have spiritual power over you, in other words, because Christ has defeated it at the cross. And how do we know it doesn't have spiritual power? Because the law was its strength, and the law is the only thing that has the power to condemn. And since Jesus has freed you from the sting of sin and the strength of sin is the law, then there's no law attached to sin by which to condemn you. That means you're probably still going to mess up, but it means there is therefore now no condemnation to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has already beat sin and its effects at Calvary. He didn't just die for you. I hope you can even see it's actually cheap compared to what he really did. He didn't just die for you. He beat up sin. He won. Like he, he didn't just take your sin and pay for it as if God had a big bill that you couldn't pay and God went, only Jesus could pay. If that helps you, then shout that to the heavens. But according to the theology of the New Testament writer, he did way more than that. He took sin and he squared off with it and he defeated it. And by defeating it, the only thing left for it to have, its strength was always the law. So the only way to resuscitate the power of sin is the law. Because if you give the law to people, you resuscitate the sense of condemnation. Because they're already going to mess up. But when you attach the law as the benchmark for favor and blessings and forgiveness and righteousness and grace, then condemnation comes in on the back of it because what happens on the back of the law is that the sin gets stronger, the sin gets strength. Therefore, if we could be freed from the condemnation attached to sin, 
And the only way we're going to do that is if we know we're freed from the law. If we could be freed from the condemnation attached to sin, we'd have a revelation that Jesus has already defeated it at Calvary. That it doesn't have any rule over us because Christ has become the victor. Therefore, victory is not something we're hoping for, but something we're living out of because we're realizing that Jesus isn't going to come and bring victory to the earth. Christ has already won the victory at Calvary. That what he did was defeat sin. And you might say, well... Um, if sin can't sting me because it's lost its strength, then why do I feel so bad when I sin? Great question. Some of that is a great self-preservation method that the, that the human body gave you to keep you from stepping into foolishness. I mean, if you reach out and touch the hot pot on the stove, your brain sends a really quick message to pull your hand away. Okay. And it's the pulling away that keeps you from burning all the flesh off your hand. Because there's a reaction, a visceral, natural, immediate reaction to what you've done that causes you to pull away. And I think it's valuable in us that when we fail, we have a visceral reaction to failure in which we pull back. The difference in what Christ has done for us at the cross is that we've been freed from the condemnation attached to that we are not lost because we have sinned. We are not out of God's favor because we have sinned. We are not unrighteous because we have sinned. Jesus defeated its power. But we pull back from it because the consequences of our actions on the earth can be so bad, so deadly, that we bristle away from the failure so that we don't step into the consequence. And those consequences are very real, and they keep us from slaughtering our neighbor sometimes, and they keep us from overrunning people because there are natural consequences. You know what the consequence might be to your sin? You just make the world around you such a terrible place to live in that you're unhappy. And that's actually the perfect consequence to your failure is that you've made things so bad that it motivates you to stay away from what it is that you're doing. And so I very much believe you're free from condemnation. I very much also do not believe you're free from consequences. You live in a world in which there are consequences to what you do. And the bristling back from those consequences are part of our human response and the part that we don't need to get rid of. Now, let me work with you a little bit with the NRSV with Paul in Colossians 2. This is the passage that actually really put me on this track tonight for this. Paul says this in Colossians 2, 11, we read down through 15. In him, of course, this is Jesus. We get several in hymns in this Colossians passage. In him... You were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. I, I, I don't know that we spend enough time thinking spiritual circumcision because who wants to think about circumcision at all? You think about it in the natural realm, you think about it in a Jewish mindset. But even in the Old Testament, the promise was not someday, boy, the world's going to be full of circumcised people. Like that was God's end game. Like I really want to make sure people are circumcised. No, even in the Old Testament, the prophecy was that we would be circumcised in our heart. All along, God's going, what I really want to change is the inside, not the outside. The outside's a reflection of what's going to happen on the inside. Right? So there's, there's the tangible, which is physical circumcision. That's going to lead to the intangible, which is a spiritual circumcision, because the only way you could understand God was through the tangible, natural temples, natural Ark of the Covenant, natural priesthood. And then comes Jesus and all the visible becomes invisible. 
And so the external circumcision becomes an internal circumcision. And Paul kind of leads the way in talking about that to say really what happened is he cut your flesh when he cut Christ. The circumcision of Christ doesn't mean when Jesus the boy was circumcised. The circumcision of Christ is the cutting of Christ at Calvary. When Christ is sliced there, when he steps into that meat grinder of Calvary, when he walks into that moment, the circumcision of Christ becomes the circumcision of your flesh. When you were buried with him, and Paul just kind of keeps going with the illustration. So let me use a bunch of Jesus illustrations. Circumcised, buried, raised. You're buried when you get baptized. You're raised with him through faith in the power of God. He raised Jesus from the dead. Now watch this. He turns it up theologically. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ when he forgave us all our trespasses. God made you alive when he forgave you of all your trespasses. So as far as God's concerned, life comes through the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins comes to us through Calvary. Life enters the human family through Calvary. So in God's economy, victory's already done. God's not, God doesn't go to the cross, die, and go, boy, hold on, guys. Someday we're going to cash in on this. You know, we won, but we didn't really win. But someday we're going to really win. So right now you got to act like you won, hope you win, but someday we're really going to win. We're going to beat up the devil. No. In God's economy, God, God says, the moment I forgave them, life enters. I ask you, when did God forgive men their sins? And Paul's teaching, he'd get to this in 2 Corinthians pretty deeply, when he said, God reconciled the world back to himself, not counting their sins against them. I mean, God just decided, look, <laughs> I mean, if I beat up sin at the cross, how am I going to hold it against them? Here's why we don't think Jesus actually beat up sin at the cross, because we think God's holding sins against us. As long as God's holding sins against us, he didn't beat it up the cross. He kind of won. Just kind of. didn't really win. We get to participate in it. But then the real victory, someday when he picks up his swords and his nuclear bombs and his missiles and he crushes the world and he goes, see, now this is how we really win. No, for God, the war is over. He's not got a sword to pick up. He's not got missiles to load up in the launching pads of heaven. He's going to come down here and decide to crush the whole world and swim in blood. What he did at Calvary was bring life to the world by forgiving us of our trespasses. And he erased the record that stood against us with its legal demands. Legal demands are the law. So the thing that stands against you that goes, don't, 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 do, do, do. Christ takes it all, puts it on the cross, and has victory over all the do's and the don'ts. He says, I'm not going to forgive you based on you doing good. I'm not going to cease to forgive you based on you doing bad. That stuff's over with. That's gone. We're going to defeat sin with its effects. The strength of sin is the law. So tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take the law and we're going to nail that to the cross too. I like how the old King James says, he took it out of the way and he nailed it to his cross. And what did he take out of the way? The handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Not the handwriting of sins that was against us. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us. What's an ordinance? It's a law. So God takes the law. He takes all the stuff that's set against us and he nails it to the cross. He set it aside, nailed it to the cross, disarmed. This is a victory word. There it is. Here's the New Testament concept of victory. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he made a public example of them and he triumphed over them in it. The triumph is the leading of the captured foreign army through the streets of the general's hometown. 
Jesus triumphs through the heavens over the forces of darkness. And here we are on the earth 2,000 years later wondering when God is going to give his people the victory. God goes, when are you going to get a revelation of what the cross did? Because he has triumphed over it. So really, the cross was the disarming of the powers that be. This whole series on the cross surfaced out of us talking about the church and the fact that the church had the wisdom and the answer that was going to be what the world needed. And what was that wisdom? The cross. And out of that message, the powers that be have no chance. So the cross is the disarming. Disarmed. That's New Testament. That's Colossians 2. Disarming is not having weapons anymore. And I like to think of it this way. If Jesus took the law on all the stuff that was against you and nailed it to his cross and said, I just disarmed your enemies, what were your enemies using against you? The law. The ordinances. Commandments. That's what they were using. It's, it's what our conscience uses against us now. And once that ceases to be what defines me, and instead what defines me is who Christ is, then I realize that my enemies are disarmed by stepping into the death put upon Jesus by man's system of violence and power. Jesus disarmed the chief weapon of the enemy. Where death is no longer a threat, we are free to live lightly and easily. You get the Enjoy abundant life when you stop worrying, freaking out about dying. Now, you think I'm simply talking about physical death. No, because Paul didn't only talk about physical death. He talked about spiritual death as well, remember. So if you can get past thinking that you're going to lose your spirit soul, you'll live freely in this world. You'll live lightly in this world. You'll live free from the restraints and free from the fear because you'll realize that there's no condemnation to you. And that will lead us to this. We have no law to live up to, but we do have the law of liberty to live out of. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, as Paul called it in Romans 6. So you are not lawless. When people say to you, you people don't believe in the law. I always say, no, you don't don't understand the law. I, I certainly believe in that I live according to the law. I just probably don't live according to the same law you do. Big difference. I mean, you can live according to legal codes that, that determine your worth and your value all you want to. I think it's going to lead you to condemnation. It's going to lead you to death and misery. I've been down that road. I've tried to live that Christianity. It's, it's hard. And I'll tell you what, eventually you just quit. Yeah. Or, or I know a few of these dudes. You make it, but you're the most miserable people in the world to be around. I got a few of those in my life too. And I mean, I don't even want to hang out with them. I don't want to be in the same room with them. They are miserable. They are a upset and cranky and dissatisfied and mad at the world and most of the time they're feeding off of the systems of the world they are they're feeding off the news and they're feeding off of conspiracy theories and they're feeding off books and they're feeding off and man it's just uh, you want to be miserable be miserable i want to live loosely and lightly i want to live freely and how am i going to do that realize it's all been nailed to the cross so that i can step into the victory that christ has given me i don't live i still have a law it's called the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus i listen to the spirit and the voice of the spirit and live according to that voice this is why i talk to you so much about love Because if love is the fulfillment of the law, then what it's going to look like is loving our neighbor. And it's going to look like loving unlovable people. It's going to look like treating our enemies better. And all of that's going to fall under the purview of what it means to really follow Christ. What it means to really follow Christ is not to be the toughest guy in the room. What it means to follow Christ is to love the unlovable guy in the room. And that's way harder than being the toughest guy in the room. (laughs) 
This is why the victory that Christ affords at the cross is far greater if you can see it without missiles and weapons and guns and swords. It's a much better victory. We also have no condemnation to oppress us, to suppress our life, because that's what condemnation does. It always makes you feel guilty. It always suppresses your life. The disarmament of condemnation arms us with the ability to, quote unquote, go and sin no more. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in the act of adultery? Neither do I condemn thee, now go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn thee, take that and go sin no more. Oh, you want to live a life where you go sin no more? Okay, reality is we know she sinned again. Come on, we're not stupid. We're not naive. She sinned again. But he gave her the equipment to be free. Neither do I condemn thee. So what equipment do you need? There is now therefore no condemnation to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Now go live. Because the next verse he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Because the law of sin and death has been nailed to the cross, I'm no longer under condemnation. All right? So then let me show you one verse and we stop on how you get to participate in this. Because that's what we want. We heard Old Testament. We heard Jesus. We heard Paul. How about we hear how we get to participate in the victory? And it's not grit your teeth and clench your fists and work real hard. It's real simple. 1 John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God, by the way, that's you, new creations, right? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So I say this to you, believe it or don't. That's the, that's the bedrock. of that's, that's where faith starts, believe it or don't. So you don't have to believe any of this. I'm a kook, crazed, out of my mind dude. You probably shouldn't watch or listen to anymore. If that's, that's cool, go for it. Listen, I mean, I've already fought all those battles, already argued it all out. I'm, I'm okay with that. You can give up, you can stop watching now. Or you can believe that victory was accomplished for you at the cross, and you can live out of that for a while. And then write me in six months and tell me how it's going. I mean, I've already, I've already walked down the other road. I'm not going back. I'm not going back to living by rules and regulations to determine my value on whether or not I read enough, prayed enough, fasted enough, went enough, gave enough. But not being, being freed from all of those obligations hasn't stopped me from reading and praying and giving and going. Now, why is that? Why is this years later I'm still doing all of this stuff? Is it because I'm crazy rich? Well, that's not it. Is it because I've, you know, I've accomplished all these great mighty things in life? No, that's not it. It might be because I'm starting to realize that my victory isn't something out ahead of me. It is something inside of me. It is something I get to live out of. And how do I do that? By my faith in Christ. And that's you too. That's yours. You got your faith in Christ. Walk this out with him or don't walk this out with him. But don't dare try to do this without him. And that's the, that's the simplest answer to me is how, what's my, what do I get to do for freedom? I want to participate in victory. Great. Place my faith in what Christ has done for me and continue to stay there and live there. I don't mean you have to re-die and you got to get re-crucified, but remember that it all happened right there at the cross and then go live because this isn't a message of, of uh, heartache and death. There's heartache and death with just being alive. You're going you're gonna to go through that. But the gospel's good news. His death is your death. And you get to live his life and you get to start now. And you go, well, I don't, I'm sorry, Paul, but I don't believe that. And my response to that is okay. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I just don't know what else to do. We're, we're, it's almost like we're trying to argue people into faith all the time. Like we're always trying to argue people into faith. I'm not going to argue you into faith. You believe it or you don't. You can believe that it's all on you and good luck with that. And I mean that with all of my heart, good luck with it. Good luck 
trying to live for God through effort and trying to please God and listening to everybody's rules and regulations and issues. Good luck. And I mean, you're going to need it. And I wish you all of it in the world. And I hope you make it through it without losing your mind. But I know that I've been down that road a ways. And I've watched a lot of people fall by the wayside and give up. And I've watched a lot of people not give up that don't like life much. And they're mad at everybody. And they're angry all the time. It's because the law worketh wrath, Paul said in Romans 7. Keep putting law on people, they just get madder and madder and madder and madder and madder and more frustrated, more angry. Release people. Now, if you say, well, my fear is that if people are released, they're going to sin like crazy. And I always say to people, of course, that's what people do the first time you set them free is they go do a bunch of stuff they always lied and act like they didn't want to do. Now they don't have to lie anymore. They go do it. What you quickly find is if you grab hold of the hot pot, you pull your hand away. So what happens is when people start to realize there's consequences that goes on in their lives, fortunately, hopefully, they don't do so many stupid things that they blow the world up around them. But we got to release people into the realizing that they are sons and daughters. Oh, and by the way, in, in, in Paul's next chapter, he tells you that if you, if you believe this, then put to death the members that are in you. And what he means by that is if you believe that you really are what I say, what Jesus says you are, then start to kill off the stuff about you you don't like. Okay, Ooh, so it sounds to me like you, got, you still got work to do. How are you going to do that? Victory that overcomes the world is faith in Christ. You start to realize... My victory's not out ahead of me. My victory's in the past. It's time to live out of it. Victory of the cross. Now, you, now, now go, back, go, go ahead and pick back up your theology of Jesus died for me individually. If I was the only person on the earth, Jesus would have died for me. Go ahead and pick that up. If, that, if you need that, hold on to that. That's fine. I'm not, I mean, I'm being a smart aleck, but I'm not really being a smart aleck. I mean, I really mean it. Like, you, you can have that. That's great. But if you can hold two things at the same time, don't let go of Jesus the victor. And he beat all that stuff up at Calvary, and I don't have to wait for him to come back and beat it up. He's already done it. Let's pray. It's a good landing spot. Father, we do not fight for victory. I do think we fight from it. But we don't fight flesh and blood. We fight the good fight of faith. That's what overcomes the world, because you've already overcome the world. Thank you for this revelation that how we really walk into the victory is to step into what you have done and believe it by faith and appropriate it by faith and accept the life that you've given us. Father, I think that in this room, that this is a room of people who they see the law nailed to the cross. They know the handwriting of ordinances isn't against them. It's not in their way. They're living free of condemnation. But I know there's a lot of people who watch and who listen who are on a journey. They're hunting. They're searching. Some of them haven't been watching very long. And they've started to watch and started to listen because there's a little different sound to this. May this be the kind of lesson that sets them on that journey to say, I don't have all the answers. I don't know the next thing to do. But if I can believe that about Jesus, that Jesus did all of that, then I'm going to start right there. Jesus did all of that, and I'm going to trust him for that today. And Father, it's the first day of the rest of their lives, and it's really the same for all of us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.